Do you have any unholy alliances? Do you have any unholy alliances? You might think, alliances? Don't talk about that very much. One of the TV shows that's made alliances very famous, uh, probably you know it, maybe, what is, what's that TV show that's made alliances very famous? Survivor, exactly. Did you realize the first time Survivor came on on TV in North America was the year 2000? Like, it's the 40th season. I mean, it's like Survivor has survived, hasn't it? On Survivor, one of the, one of the big goals is to form alliances so that that you can have protection and you don't get voted off the island. Now, I don't know if you've ever formed a formal alliance with anybody. Maybe you never thought of it that way, but many of us belong to groups or squads is the new term that we belong to in order to have a sense of community and security. We may not even realize that we have these alliances until they're gone, right? until we go into some new situation. Just like on the show, when alliances are broken, there's usually a lot of consternation. And often a person who goes away to college or university or leaves to take a job somewhere else, they feel that those alliances are broken. My daughter this week went up to Muskoka Bible Center to start her summer job, and and she realized how much she misses her friends and her family. We've got like multiple FaceTimes. And uh, it's actually working in a sense. See, she appreciates us more, so it's, it's a good thing. But it's been hard too to see her go through that homesickness and missing her alliances. Often alliances are not even fully realized. This is no more evident than when people hook up with each other and do not realize that the bond that they are making with another person. Psychologists and Christian speakers, Barbara Wilson calls this the invisible bond. Others call it soul ties. Here at Temple, we understand these bonds and describe them in our affirmation of faith that we ask our members to sign as part of being an alliance, to be in our mission with Jesus. If you're a member of, of Temple Baptist Church, you're in an alliance with us. You're part of a community on mission with Jesus. And we have a number of core values, and one of them is on marriage. And the last part of that marriage statement says this, we believe further that Christians should neither marry unbelievers nor enter into any other spiritually detrimental alliances with them. Now, when we went through our whole reworking of our, our guiding principles, we as leaders went, this is a term that our forefathers use, spiritually detrimental alliances. What does that mean? And so it's defined as detrimental spiritual alliance means a romantic, sexual, conjugal, or cohabiting relationship that would direct a person away from Christ. So I'll ask you again, do you have any unholy alliances? Is there any relationship that's drawing you away from Christ? Today we conclude in the book of Ezra, our study of the book of Ezra, and we've, we've learned from the beginning at the start in chapters 1 and 2 about how we're supposed to rebuild on God's promises and his provisions, and we're supposed to do so with purity and generosity. And we've learned that there'll be setbacks and there's starts and there's stops and discouragement along the way. And at times we've experienced that just with some 
minor delays with even our own city approval of the recreation of our property here, the Master's Plan 4.0. We also learned that we should expect opposition and that no matter what, we should still pursue obeying God's word. And we build on his word. And we've learned that God also wants to deal with our hearts first whenever he does a renovation project, before he ever starts to work physically in our lives. The last few weeks, we've learned that God revealed the, the sin beneath the sin. He likes to do a deep dive into our hearts. And there are times in our lives that we're not aware of the sin that we've been committing. Now, in the case of the returned exiles from Babylon, they did not realize the grave problem of marrying foreign wives. They had either been in Babylon as slaves for a long time, or they had been, come, they'd been left as a remnant in Palestine as care, caregivers of the land. And they had forgotten about the word of God, and they didn't know it, which is why Ezra had to teach them. In Ezra, remember, recall this as one of our memory verses? Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And Ezra, he devoted himself to study the law and to do it and then to teach the people of Israel. And that's true for us. We need to study God's word and we need to do it and then we need to teach it. We can't miss the doing. But in that verse, we find something very compelling and that is, that the people didn't know God's word. They'd forgotten it. And since the people didn't know the law and the word of God, it's no surprise that they weren't living up to it. Often when we don't know and live out the word of God, it affects our relationships and often our most intimate relationships. In the case of the Jews, they had married foreign women and didn't realize that they were living in sin. That's an old term, isn't it? Is that still relevant today? Living in sin? maybe considered archaic, left over from a bygone era before the sexual revolution, but it still has relevance today. By the way, here's what I've discovered. Every generation has had, it impu- has had its impurity, right? Every generation. Let's not buy into chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis calls it, and think we're better than others, or we're worse than others. It's just some generations, the sin was more hidden. A lot of couples used to elope, I'm told, because they're already pregnant. In our time, thanks to the Me Too movement, sexual sin is now revealed more publicly. And what I've noticed is that that one time fornication was concealed, but now it's common, right? We don't even blink an eye. People talk about romantic and sexual relationships like, like they're just driving a car, right? And they're taking it for a test drive. But I got to tell you, people aren't cars, right? They have emotions. They have souls. They're more than just electrical wiring. We've forgotten this profound truth. And I'm afraid, it, I'm afraid it's even bled into our educational system, which is one of the leading shapers of culture. At one time, if a teacher was cohabiting, it might jeopardize their job. In fact, they would lose their job. Now that is acceptable. Now, I'm going to tell you, I applaud teachers. I think they have one of the hardest jobs in the world, and they deserve the summer off, right? Right, Lena? 
However, I'm deeply concerned that if teachers want to be the main educators of the sexuality of our children and they practice and preach sex outside of marriage between one woman and one man, then that's going to be a massive problem for the next generation. Who will put the brakes off of us sliding off the cliff into a moral abyss? It's got to be the church, right? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, we read that Paul told Timothy. Well, let's start with us as a church because judgment always begins with the household of God, as 1 Peter 4, 17 says. So let's, let's ask this question. Are we living in sin? This is not just about cohabiting outside the bounds of marriage. This is talking about sin in general, any way, any shape, form. Don't we all find ourselves living with and in some sinful state? It's a battle every day, isn't it? And today we're going to find out what to do when we discover we're living in sin from Ezra chapter 10 as we conclude this chapter in this book. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word from Ezra chapter 10 verses 18 through 44. You can look this up in your smartphones and your tablets. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one to you after at the Welcome Center. And no matter if we're virgins, widows, married, single, young, or old, this passage and this message is for us wherever God reveals sin in our lives. Now i got to tell you, when I read this passage, this is probably going to be the closest I've ever come to speaking in tongues when you hear all these, the names, because they're hard. So give me a lot of grace, and Lord, um, thank you for helping me learn a little bit of Hebrew because we got to know these names up in heaven. So Ezra chapter 10, verse 18. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Messiah, Eleazar, Jerob, Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers. And they pledged themselves to put their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock of their guilt. And of the sons of Immer... Hanani and Zebediah, and of the sons of Harim, Masiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehaliel, and Uzziah, and of the sons of Pasher, Illinoihai, uh, Messiah, Ishmael, Nethiel, Nethanel, Jozebad, and Elisa. Of the Levites, Jozebad, Shimei, Kileah, that is Kalida, we should just say that the first time, right? Pethahiah, Judah, and Eleazar, and of the sinners, Elishab, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Talim, and Uri, and of the Israel, and of the sons of Perosh, Ramai, Izzai, Malkijah, Majimin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Benaiah, and of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jeliel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, and of the sons of Zatu, Elinoye, Elishab, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabed, and Aziah. Of the sons of Bebai were Jehonahan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athlai. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Malak, Adiah, Jashub, Sheliel, and Jeremoth. And of the sons of Peath, Moab, Adna, Chalal, Benaiah, Messiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui and Manasseh, and of the sons of Harim, Eleazar, Ishjaya, Malkijah, 
Shemahiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah. And of the sons of Hashem, Madaniah, Matatiah, Zabad, Eliphat, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. And of the sons of Bene, Mide, Amran, Ulio, Benaiah, Benadiah, Chalui, Benaniah, Meramuth, Elishab, Madaniah, Matanay, Jeshu, and of the sons of Binu, Shimei, Shalemiah, Nathan, Adai, Machtenmenubai, Sheshai, Sharai, Azarel, Shalemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. And of the sons of Nebo, Jaleel, Matahiah, Zabad, Zabiniah, Jadai, Joel, and Benaiah. Of these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even been born children. Don't, don't be clapping. I didn't do a great job. I just made it through without laughing, okay? So you guys may be seated. It's hard. But these words matter. Every word matters. So that's why we wanted to... Uh... But thanks. I love how you're so gracious. That's great. And you're just thankful that you didn't have to come up here and do that, right? Okay. In all seriousness, when, when you realize you were living in sin, here's the first thing you need to do. Radically cut off sin from your life, including unholy alliances, to express your guilt to the Lord and redeem the names of your family and heroes of the faith. Say that again to simplify. Radically cut off sin from your life, including unholy alliances. Express your guilt to the Lord, and thirdly, redeem the names of your family and the heroes of the faith. Let's start by asking the Lord to reveal any sin to us personally. And I found there was a bunch of different ways that I do this in my own life. One of them is I go through the Ten Commandments, and I ask God, um, let me just walk through the Ten Commandments. Is there any commandment that I've broken? And I don't just use... Um, I don't just use uh, uh, the Old Testament um, explanation that we find in Exodus and Deuteronomy of the Ten Commandments. I also add to Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus gives further explanation about lust and anger being equivalent in regards to, in our mind, as murder and lust. And so uh, I'll use the Ten Commandments. Sometimes I'll pray um, through the steps to freedom of Christ that Neil Anderson has. I find those to be really helpful. We, we help people pray through those. You can talk to myself or Wendy Hodgins, our prayer coordinator. Those have been very helpful times in my life. But the one that I use the most is this psalm. Psalm 139, 23-24. And it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way of me and lead me in the way everlasting. So let's pray those verses right now. Let's pray those verses. And I want you just silently, quietly, like privately, personally, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to bring anything to mind that you need to get right with him. So let me pray. Father God, your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, would you search us, O God, and know our heart? Would you try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any grievous ways in us? 
and lead us in the way everlasting. Show us our sin right now to each one of us here. Father, thank you for being such a holy God, for shining your spotlight on us, and that we know if we walk in the light as your son Jesus is in the light, we can now have fellowship with you and with one another. And we want to be able to have that as we confess our sins to you. You promised to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us our sins. Thank you for that. And God's people said, Amen. So what did God reveal to you? Don't shout it out loud. But what did God reveal to you? Whatever God revealed to you is what you need to radically cut off from your life, including unholy alliances. And I want to remind you, last week, we learned that if you're married to an unbeliever and they will still have you and they're not abusing you, they're not cheating on you, they're not committing adultery, you need to stick with them as long as they'll stick with you. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 15. And for Christians who are married, who are going through a rough spot in their marriage, I would remind you of the hope of Jesus Christ. I do not believe we can, we can use irreconcilable differences if we claim to belong to the great reconciler, Jesus Christ. Cannot Jesus Christ help us to bring about peace and reconciliation in our lives? I hope that you'll find that to be true in your life today. Jesus might want to get you rid of some things in that pursuit of reconciliation, and that sacrifice may be painful. But here's what Jesus taught. Radical surgery of sin requires more than cutting things off but also throwing them away. Recall what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, which, guess what? We're gonna, then starting next week, we're going to start um, teaching on the Beatitudes. It's going to be, a, I'm really excited about that this summer. But in Matthew 5, 29, turn there to Matthew 5, just so you can get a, a, aware of where we'll be studying. And I want you to read ahead this week into Matthew 5 just to get the context. But Matthew 5, 29, look what Jesus says. This is actually uh, something that Jesus repeatedly taught in the Gospels. Matthew 5, 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better than you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now look up at me. I think everybody has two eyes here today. I think everybody has two hands. So you guys didn't do this this week, did you? What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about whatever is causing you to sin, you need to get rid of it. But I, I got to confess to you, here's one of the problems I've had. I've done some spiritual amputation in my life, but I forgot to put the offending member in the garbage. And guess what happens? 
if I keep it too close, I reattach that sinful whatever in my life and it starts to grow back with vengeance causing me to sin more. Have you found this to be true? You have to get rid of it. You have to throw it away. You have to get, be far from it. So if there's something in your life that is causing you to sin, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about those that you're married to, but whatever other things, whether it's a screen, whether it's whatever, you need to get rid of it. My friends, I want to encourage you. Some of the things that God has revealed to you to maybe have done in ignorance. I bet when God revealed something, he's like, oh, that can't be true. Is that really wrong? You got to trust the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people who are sinning and unaware of their crimes against God. Didn't Jesus teach us this? I mean, this is so profound on the cross. Remember when Jesus said this, and you finished the statement. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're... That's always a head-scratcher for me, because, like, the Romans were really good at execution through crucifixion. Like, they had perfected this torturous execution device. They knew exactly what they were doing when they were pounding the nails through Jesus' hands, Right? And the Jews, they knew that Jesus was innocent. They couldn't corroborate with two or three witnesses, as the law had said. But they said, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus has, says this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I think it's because this, they couldn't comprehend who they were actually killing. The Son of God. And none of us understand truly the depth of our sin and what it, what it cost Jesus on that cruel cross. If we did, we would become undone. Why I bring this up is because notice, look, let's go back to Ezra chapter 10, verse 19, that the priests offered a guilt offering of a ram from their flock. And note it wasn't, only the priests that offered this guilt offering. And this is important for two reasons. Here's the, the two reasons. I'll read the verse first. They pledged themselves to put away their, their wives. They got rid of these foreign wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Remind you again, this is not racism. I've married a foreigner, married an American. You don't have to get rid of a foreign wife or a foreign spouse. This is about people who were, who were detracting you from God. There's two important reasons why this verse 19 is significant for us. First of all, leaders need to lead in confession. Leaders need to lead in confession. And two, unintentional sins need to be atoned for. And in regard to leaders need to lead in confession, the priests were the spiritual leaders of the day. And they should have known better, but they didn't. They didn't know better. As one Bible scholar remarks, clearly neither ancestry nor office can be a guarantee of moral probity. It may even be significant that the priest who made up 10% of the company in chapter 2 supply 15% of the cases here. So the priests were actually sitting more. They were the ones who married all these foreign wives. And the priests have neglected the word of God, which is such a warning to us church leaders today. 
God will lovingly expose our sin. I love how Bible scholar Derek Kidner reminds us, we, are, we might have expected some cover-up of priestly guilt. This catalog goes out of its way to give prominence with true biblical candor by reversing the order that we read in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, they listed all the people coming back, and there was very few Levites. There was very few priests. But in this chapter, there's a lot more priests, and it starts out with the priest. The Bible doesn't promote, but reports cover-ups, especially of God's leaders. And this is one of the reasons why this is the Word of God and why it's true. If you're a skeptic here today, I just want to remind you, this is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible. Because it gives you the raw, unadulterated truth. It doesn't hide things. It never whitewashes its heroes. So my friends, if you're a leader in your home, in your school, in your workplace, or in the community or in the church, be a true leader and lead in confession. We leaders are the ones who have to be the first to confess. The second reason why the priest offered his guilt offering is important is that unintentional sins still need to be atoned for. And some of you are like, whoa. Maybe we're trying to play the innocence card and say, well, we didn't know. Okay. But now God has showed you and true Christians own their sin. They don't keep making excuses. They're like, as soon as you find out, like, whoa, I need to get right with you, God. And this is the good news for us today. Did you know that God is so full of grace? So full of grace. Abundant grace. Remember our memory verse for this month? Ezra 8.22b, the hand of our God is for what? Good on, who, on all those who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. So if we seek God, even with our sin, it's going to bring about good. He will forgive it. He'll bring good in our life. And this is what the priest did. You see, the guilt offerings described in Leviticus 5, 14 through 26, are usually given for unintentional transgressions. This is something that, that was new to me. You got to turn there. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14 through 26. So first book of the Bible is Genesis. You can look this up on the table of contents. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 26. Leviticus 5, 14 through 26. You got it? Actually, we're just, sorry. Leviticus 5, 14 through 19. I don't know where I make, I'm making... I'm adding verses to the Bible. Please forgive me, Lord, okay? This goes through verse 19. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. Notice that, a ram. Same thing that we read in Ezra. Chapter 10. 
And then look at verse 16. He shall also make restitution for what he's done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. There's something that we need to do. We need to make restitution for if we've done something wrong, we've wronged something. And maybe add to that. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering. He shall be forgiven. Now, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt. He shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest the ram without the blemish of the flock or its equivalent of a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven." It is a guilt offering, and he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The tough part about reading this is the priests were the ones who were supposed to make intercession. They were supposed to help the Israelites when they had committed something, a transgression. But in this case, in, in Ezra chapter 10, it's the priests who, who are guilty. And so... What happens when the intercessor needs intercessing themselves? Well, this is where we get to jump to the New Testament and this awesome news. The, uh, we have the ultimate high priest who never sinned. Jesus Christ, who takes over for us priests. We are all a pre holy priesthood. That's what we're called in the New Testament. And when we are unclean and need forgiveness, Jesus gives that to us. So what should all of us do when we've learned of our sin? When the Holy Spirit has tapped on our shoulder, we express our guilt to the Lord. We confess it. And if we do, listen to this awesome promise from our high priest. This is about our high priest, Jesus. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anybody need any mercy or grace today? I do. And that mercy and grace doesn't just have to be for us. Here's some awesome, even more news, better news. You can have it for your family. Your family needs it? Does your family need grace and mercy? How about for the church family? Do we as a church need grace and mercy? Absolutely. So notice in the list of names that many of them are unfamiliar. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 10. And there's a few famous names, right? Maybe you caught them in the midst of all the harder names. There's Elijah, Manasseh, they're mentioned twice. And then there's this other name that keeps coming up. His name is Benaiah. Who, have you heard of Benaiah? Who here has heard of Benaiah? Okay, like I didn't learn about Benaiah when I was um, in Sunday school growing up. He doesn't get a lot of press in the Bible, but his story is amazing. And it's found in 1 Chronicles 11, 22 through 25. 1 Chronicles, this is a few books to your left. And I have it up on the screen here. I'm just going to read it. 1 Chronicles 11, 22 through 25. Benaiah, this is the list of David's fighting men. It says, And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. I love that. A doer of great deeds. Are you a doer of great deeds? He struck down two heroes of Moab. Pretty important to recognize that this Benaiah guy, he actually dealt with these, 
these pagan nations that were affecting the Israelites. And then look at this line. It's almost a throwaway line. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Now think about that for a moment. You go down into a pit where there's a lion. You intentionally do that. And it's snowing. And by the way, back then they didn't have hiking boots on. It's just sandals. So it's going to be pretty slippery. You're not going to win this fight with the lion, are you? But he does, because we know verse 23 carries on. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. Five cubits tall. Now, this help you, it's just so you can study your Bible for yourself. One cubit is 18 inches, or 45 centimeters. So five times 45 is 225 centimeters. How tall is that? <laughs> this sounds like bath class, doesn't it? Okay. Seven foot six. How, how tall is Pascal Siakam? Not as tall, right? Wow. Kevin Durant, I think shorter than 7'6". This guy's tall. And so Benaiah doesn't tell us how tall he is, but he goes and it says this. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. Benaiah went down to him with the staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. That's pretty impressive, don't you think? Then these things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name besides the three mighty men. And he was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David, that's King David, set him over his bodyguard. So think about that. Like he is the, he's the head of the secret service in David's kingdom. Benaiah was a mighty man. He's a man of great courage. And it would seem a lot of parents say, like, I like that Benaiah guy. I read about him. I want my son to be named after him. Do you know what Benaiah means? His name means? It means Yahweh builds up. Yahweh builds up. Now, on a side note, if you want to read all about Benaiah, there's a great book by Mark Batterson called In a Pit with the Lion on a Snowy Day. It's in our library, unless the first service people already got to it, Okay. But my point in sharing this backstory of Benaiah is that this hero's name had been sullied by those who shared his namesake. And instead of Yahweh building up, God's people who were to rebuild the temple were tearing it down with their sin. And there were four different men named Benaiah in Ezra 10. We read that verse 25, verse 30, verse 35, and verse 43. And all of these men... Instead of fighting the enemy like their namesake did, join the enemy and they married wives from these foreigners. Maybe you find yourself today named after a godly ancestor. Do you know, do you know what your name, who you're named after? Maybe it's a, a person of, of the faith, a godly hero of our faith. But maybe you haven't lived up to that holy name. I've got good news to you. If you radically cut off sin from your life. 
including unholy alliances, and express your guilt to the Lord, he can redeem that godly heritage and the name that you've been given you. God is so concerned about the purity of his people. And this is why the Bible takes the time to list the culprits so that sin can be dealt with. We find this in the last verse of Ezra 10. It says this, All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Now you might think, man, wow, all these guys got outed, and their names are listed here, and all we know about them is that they had married foreign wives. But that's not the end of the story. That's only seeing it from a legalistic standpoint. The grace side is they repented, didn't they? They found grace. And it says here that they had born, even born children. This means that there are probably not a lot of children born to these illegitimate parents. As my dad says, there's no such thing as illegitimate children. There's only illegitimate parents. The child is still a gift. But the problem is, is those illegitimate parents could have ruined the whole batch, the whole restoration project that God's people were on, of rebuilding the temple. And then the book seems to abruptly end. One of you asked me last week why the book of Ezra ends so abruptly, and there's no other story. That's because in the Hebrew um, the Hebrew Bible, both Ezra and Nehemiah are, are really one book. And so that's why we're going to get to learn more about Ezra in chapter 8 of, of Nehemiah. And we're going to study Nehemiah, Lord willing, this fall. So we continue on our build series. It's evidence, though, that the Bible is just one big story, God's big story. With Jesus Christ, who's the, who is the hero. That's why we call our discipleship pathway God's big story. And he's the one who helps us to radically cut off sin and gives us grace when we express our guilt over our sin. It's Jesus who enables us to redeem our family and heroes and godly heritage. How? Jesus made an eternal alliance with you and me. When he died on that cross and he rose again, Jesus has already removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And Psalm 103, 12 promises. So how can we continue to bring that sin back into our lives? The work of Jesus Christ does the hard work of removal. We must actively live in that freedom. Not because we're afraid of getting kicked off the island, getting, getting the alliance negated, getting kicked off, getting kicked out of the church. But because the best way to live is with Jesus. It's the only way to survive. It's the only way to live. So will you come to Jesus? I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. And as we sing, I want you to, to hear the voice of the Lord God. Jesus is calling you to the altar to radically cut off sin and express your guilt. And I got to tell you, redemption is just on the other side of radical removal and expression of guilt. It's just on the other side. This is an opportunity. I'm going to pray. But maybe you, maybe you're the leader of your family or in the church and you need to lead in confession. It's an opportunity for you to come and pray.
Maybe you just want to do that privately, personally in your chair. That's fine too. But there's something, there's something powerful when you express that to God. It's like the, the names that are so hard to say. They actually came forward and they removed the sin and expressed their guilt to the Lord. Maybe some of you, that today is the day of salvation for you and you didn't realize that you were guilty of a whole bunch of sins. Today, today you can be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, would you, would you continue to redeem us? Would you redeem today our families? Lord, I pray today would be a, a, a monumental shift in our lives and in our families' lives as we walk and decide to follow you. Lord, would your spirit just well up within Speak deep into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said.